did not hear this last night. Okay? When President Lincoln went to give what is now the famous Cooper Union speech in February 1860, citizen Abraham Lincoln went to New York, his first time in New York. We think he was thinking of becoming president. As a matter of fact, Holzer, who's written about 43 books and articles about President Lincoln, says in his book, The Cooper Union Speech, the speech that made Lincoln the president. This is how Abraham Lincoln began the Cooper Union speech, February 27, 1860. Remember, it's citizen Abraham Lincoln. The facts with which I deal, shall deal this evening are mainly old and familiar, nor is there anything new in the general use I shall make of them. If there be any novelty, it will be in the mode of presenting the facts and the inferences and observations following that presentation. Uh, also, I usually start off with telling you what happened this day in 1863. That's already been done. You already do that. So I, that saves us a little time. But that's the first time I've seen that happen. Okay. So uh, I will get to where my uh, title came from. I think you'll like that. But what we're going to do is basically what I simply hope to have happen this evening is that when you leave here, you have a better appreciation of the Gettysburg Address than you did when you arrived. Uh, and we'll do that by, that. we'll try to accomplish that goal by giving you a context and background, and then we want to talk about what was on his mind, what was bothering him, what were the pressures with which he had to deal personally, politically, and as a matter of national policy, which as I'm sure you know can include military, economic, political, social, diplomatic, and we'll talk about a couple of them to give you insights into the pressures with which this president had to deal. And whenever I can, I will connect that to the Gettysburg Address. Of course, we question and answers are welcome at the end. We can't walk in the cemetery, but uh, it, I have been, I've been privileged to be able to do this a couple of times. And then we maybe have a lunch, and then we actually spend an hour or two in the Soldiers National Cemetery, which the president dedicated. And then I'll, I uh, will use the rule of threes when we go through the Gettysburg Address. Okay. Again, a greater understanding. Why did he come? What was on his mind? That's what we're going to do. All right. Now this is helpful. This was. This is a, a Gettysburg artist. His name is Dale Gallen. By that I mean he lives in Gettysburg. Most of his his, his uh, paintings are military uh, of, of the battle. But he did this in uh, 2008 to celebrate the 145th anniversary of the battle and the address. And also that celebrated, and this is for those of you who may not have been to Gettysburg recently, this was the year in which the David Wills house, the man who was the host, that house was purchased by the federal government, turned over to the National Park Service, purchased from the borough, of Gettysburg, God bless them. You know, it was the tackiest gift shop I've ever been in. They had a pharmacy in the in the first floor. Those of you who have been there in the past decades, it was run down. Well, about four to seven million dollars later, I'm pleased to report to you that it's been completely refurbished to its 19th century appearance. And we are told, and I tell every tourist I take through the square, the town square, and I show them the David Wills house, we have been told that the bed, the bed is the original bed, 
the desk is the original desk the president used, and even the uh, spread on the bed was used by President Lincoln as he finished writing the Gettysburg Address in David Will's house the night before. That night would be November 18th, 1863. So you can visit that now. It's part of the National Park. All right. And this I will use to get into some of my themes. There's a lot in this painting that may not occur to you when you originally look at it. So here comes the president. He has arrived. He's careworn. He's bent over. That railroad station is still there. It's been added on to, was added on to in 1880, but this is what was there at the time of the battle, and it's what was there November 18 when he arrived. Please take a look at his right arm. That is a mourning band for their son, Willie, who died in 1862 in the White House. Eddie had died in Springfield, Illinois, so they lost two sons by this point in time. And major, 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 major personal problem with which he had to deal coming to Gettysburg is that Tad is sick. Four boys, two have died. One has died in the White House, and the youngest is sick, and Mary Todd Lincoln is, depends who you read, distraught, hysterical, beside herself, and this president, on a personal level, has to focus, compartmentalize, and rise above even that deep, serious, personal situation in his family because of the importance of what he's been asked to do. That, to me, is the most significant personal issue, but that's only one of them. This, you already know this now, this is the main speaker, this is Edward Everett, former governor of Massachusetts, senator, House of Representatives, president of Harvard, teacher of Greek philosophy, minister of the court of St. James. He was the man. This is the United States Secretary of State, Seward, Seward Seward. You, have, you already got the question, who are his two personal secretaries, John Nicolay and John Hay, and they both were there as your question was correctly answered. You know what their job was? A little bit of politics here. Their job was to go around and go to the bars that night. Because the, not to drink, necessarily, but to test the political waters. The president wanted feedback on what the town people were thinking. The governor of Pennsylvania is not in this, but he will be there. We'll talk about him in a moment. The governor was a political ally of the president, but he was voted back in in 1863, October. So that election was secure, but the president wanted to know what the people were feeling generally. Uh, this is David Wills, the host. And they're walking up Carlisle Street, which is still there, and they're going to the David Wills house, which I already talked about. And David Wills will host 38 people that night in his home, including the president and Edward Everett. And uh, Ward Hill Lehman is back there, and that question was quite correct. Uh, it did also did not include that Lehman was also his sometime personal bodyguard. And Lehman and Pinkerton were the only two people on that rail in that railroad car that switched from the northern station to the southern station on the morning of February 23, 1861, which when the president, because of a very creditable assassination attempt report, cut his tour short and went to Philly and came down to Baltimore and went through the town hours before the crowds were expected to gather and we believe attempt to assassinate him. And the only two men who were with him 
or Pinkerton and Lehman. And Lehman is here, and you'll find this nowhere. But he was also the Grand Marshal of the parade, and I, your humble speaker, think he was also there as a bodyguard. He, from time to time, would sleep in front of the President's bedroom if he suspected that there was a danger. You could just knock on the door and walk in the White House back in 1863. And Lehman always had at least a knife, brass knuckles, and two pistols with him at all times. And back here is William Johnson. He is the uh, a free black man and he is the president's valet. Another personal issue with which the president is dealing, this man and that man are coming down with smallpox. It was called varioloid back then, so the president is incubating smallpox. If you don't think that's serious, for three weeks after he gets back, he's in quarantine and he's bedridden for half, at least half the time. And with his sense of humor, he says, now I've got something I can give everybody. <laughs> but more seriously, he will die within three weeks. That's how serious the sickness was. Okay. So, the background is the Battle of Gettysburg. We, that's, I mean, there's no Gettysburg address without the Battle of Gettysburg. And you know a lot about it, you're going to learn a lot more, so just the short version is, it's the most horrific battle on the North American continent before or since. There has never been a more horrific battle in terms of the casualties. The casualties are 51,000. Now it's important to realize in the Civil War when we say casualty, I'm sure most if not all of you know this, you mean killed, wounded, captured, missing. It is four categories. There were 11,000 killed at Gettysburg. So those of you, I hope none of you do this, who take your history from Hollywood when you saw Remember the Titans, and they stopped at the cemetery to honor the 50,000 men who died for you at Gettysburg. And eh, wrong. 51,000. Casualties. 11,000 were killed. That's still a lot. Big problem politically and militarily. From the president's point of view, why did General Meade not counterattack when the final attack failed? But he didn't. Somebody spent 20 years writing a book called Retreat from Gettysburg, which begins to get into that. What about the retreat and pursuit? If you're the President of the United States on the July 7th, when you get a final telegram telling you that Vicksburg has just surrendered, and now the Union, the United States of America, the North, on July 3rd and July 4th, 1863, has back-to-back -back victories. And Lee's army is still making its way from Pennsylvania into Maryland and has not yet crossed the Potomac. They won't cross till the night of the 13th and finish the morning of the 14th. The president writes a memo, a telegram, and I'm paraphrasing until I get to the actual quote. Now, he's got the Vicksburg thing. He knows about Gettysburg. He's so happy as commander-in-chief. If George Meade, General Meade, can finish the job he has so gloriously accomplished in defeating General Lee by literally or figured literally or actually destroying Lee's army. Quote, the rebellion will be over, close quote. That's what the president believed on July 7th. July 14th, Lee makes it across the Potomac safely. That is very much on the president's mind. And he thinks seriously about firing General Meade. Soldiers have a really good telegraph. They know what's going on. 
And the president writes this letter, and this is, again, Lincoln's character. About three or four years ago in the National Archives, we found the envelope. He put it in his desk, and it says on the front, to General Meade, never, never signed or sent. But he does tell General Halleck, the general-in-chief, his thoughts and feelings about the, the opportunity that was lost. General Meade is very upset that the president is upset and offers to resign. And President Lincoln thinks better of it doesn't fire him. But that is on his mind. We lost that opportunity to end the entire war. If you're the president, that's what he's thinking. All right, Governor Curtin plays a big role. Governor Curtin, uh, our country, as you all know, was not ready for this war, wasn't ready for the prisoners, the casualties, the dead, the burials, the wounded, the veteran services that were needed, the effect on families. We were in no way prepared for this. Pennsylvania, in 1862 passed the law that she would pay for her debt, pay for the burial expenses for her soldiers' deaths. So Curtin, the battles fought in his state, the Ewell's Corps was two miles away from Harrisburg, ready to attack it, when General Lee said you need to concentrate on June 28, 29-30. Uh, so Curtin realized the capital itself was almost uh, devastated, He's physically sick or extremely upset, depends on who you read, but he tours the battlefield within less than a week. We've got to do something about this. And as all of us would say today, that morphed into all the governors of all the 18 northern states that had soldiers that fought at Gettysburg, deciding that they would put and dedicate a cemetery at Gettysburg for all of them. And David Wills was known by the governor. He was a very respected lawyer in town. And so David Wills becomes the agent for the governors of all 18 states based on Curtin's visit to the battlefield and his reaction to what he saw. And that's very important because the next, in my opinion, significant personal issue with which this president had to do, and professional if you want to, is he knew. He was not the keynote speaker. Can you imagine that happening today? And in my opinion, the second time you've heard this, Brian, this is the biggest, biggest understatement in the entire history of these here United States of America. When David Wills, who does an outstanding job, invites the president, the letter starts off saying the 18 states who had soldiers who fought here, we've picked, we've made the decision to have a cemetery. We've picked the ground, we've picked the cemetery, we've picked the date, we've picked the keynote speaker, we've now would like you to come if you can fit it into your busy schedule. And when you come, please make only a few appropriate remarks because you're not the keynote speaker. There will be a parade, there'll be an oration, there'll be a band, including the Marine Cordon. We'll play, the Baltimore Glee Club will sing, the Reverend Stockton will give a thousand word prayer, Edward Everett will speak for two plus hours, the Baltimore Glee Club sings again, and then Ward Hill Lehman introduces the President of the United States, who knows he's only supposed to speak a short period of time, and he accepts every one of those slights and rises above it. That's my point to you. There's, a, there's Governor Curtin from the Library of Congress, not too good of pixels, but that is he. This is David Wills, fairly contemporary with uh, 
There are older, grayer pictures when he became a judge. If you see Judge Wills, Judge Wills, if they're talking about this time, he was not a judge. He became a judge later. And then, uh, excuse me, I think we skipped over. Well, somehow Edward Everett didn't make it in this one. Okay, now the, more in the background to get into this. The um, Constitution of the United States, this is important, this narrow three things I want to tell you, because it, it's directly related to what he says in the Gettysburg Address. Our Constitution, as written, refers to slavery three times, but does not ever use the word. The first time, I have articles and sections and clauses if you want them, but the first time is, is as all of you know, we elect our members in the House of Representatives based on population by congressional districts. The Senate gets two apiece. Rhode Island gets the same amount of senators as California. We all know that. But the southern states, when they agreed to the Constitution, were concerned that the northern states were growing in population more quickly than they. So persons, other than Indian tribes, who we know they meant as slaves, would be count as three would be counted as three fifths of a person for census purposes only to elect members of the House of Representatives. That's the first reference to slaves because they had no other rights. The second reference to slaves is um, in the English common law and, and which formed the basis of our laws and then was incorporated in our, our, our lots of states' laws. It's number 21, 21 years is an important number for a lot of things. So the Constitution was written in 1787 and they compromised the importation and migration of slaves 21 years into the future. So the Constitution in another clause says you can import and uh, migrate, and if you want to pay $10 a piece, we'll charge you that, until 1808. And in another clause of the Constitution, they say, we know you want to amend this, where it's probably going to be amended, and we know another compromise not related to today's talk was, we need a Bill of Rights. You've set up the government, but citizens need a Bill of Rights, and those are the First Amendments. So they knew that was coming. They put another clause saying, you can amend that, but you cannot change this 1808 date. So they really wanted that compromise to last till then. The third thing they did was, they referred to persons held to service or labor in one state who escaped to another state. The owner of that person held to service or labor could claim that person and bring them back to their state because after all, they're just property. That is the constitutional basis of the Fugitive Slave Law. And there was a 1793 Fugitive Slave Law, but the one that enraged most of the abolitionists was, was a contributing cause to the Civil War was the 1850 Compromise, which really put teeth into the, into the fugitive slave law based on this constitutional provision. And I love to say this because it's true. Persons held to service of labor. See how they're not referring to, to slaves? They spell labor, L-A-B-O-U-R, because that's the way the Brits spelled it, because all these people were treasonous against their home country, and they were still thinking not the way Brits think. Okay, we already did today in 1863. Right, move right along. Excellent, thank you. Two stories. Yeah, these are bases, solid bases for the president. We've all heard about Honest Abe. This is the one story you may not have heard about. During his trial practice in the 1840s, he was a very good lawyer. They would ride the circuit. 
the judge would ride with him, the lawyers would ride with him, you and your opponent would be kibitzing all day, you'd drink at night in the tavern, three or four of you'd sleep in the same room, in the same bed, maybe even with the judge, and then you'd argue your case and move to the next uh, citus for when Davis would occasionally get sick or couldn't make it, he would appoint Lincoln as judge pro tem for a day, and nobody objected to it. So judge try to imagine this, that you're the opposing counsel to Abraham Lincoln today. You win or lose, but tomorrow you're, he's your judge. And then the next day you're opposing counsel. That didn't happen that much. The Illinois State Supreme Court changed that in 1877, but that is a really good indication of how honest and respected Lincoln was amongst his peers. Okay. From whence cometh the title? Uh, William Herndon, his longest partner, 1844 to 1860, uh, is asked on December 21st, 1860, excuse me, he writes back to a Senator Wilson, who is a senator from Massachusetts, who will, by the way, become the second, in the second grant presidency, Wilson becomes his vice president. So this, this, guy, this guy's not too shabby. So he's a senator from Massachusetts. He writes Herndon on December 21st, 1860. The president has been elected. He has not left for Washington for his inauguration. He is given an office in the Capitol and he goes to work every day while he's trying to wind down his law practice with Herndon and he's getting people coming in every day wanting office, office seekers. So Wilson wants to know, what can we expect? What do you think, Mr. Herndon, of President Lincoln, elect Lincoln? This is the letter, and please, this is my point of how determined Abraham Lincoln is, because this is his partner telling him what he thinks Lincoln's going to be like for the next one or two terms. I know him better than he knows himself. I know this seems a little strong, but I risk the assertion. Lincoln is a man of heart, as gentle as a woman's and as tender but he has a will as strong as iron. He is therefore loves all mankind, hates slavery, and every form of despotism. Put these together, love for the slave and a determination, there's that word, a will that just as strong and unyielding shall be done when he has the right to act, and you can form your own conclusion. Lincoln will fail here, namely if a question of political economy, if any question comes up which is doubtful, questionable, no man can demonstrate, and his friends can rule him. But when it's on justice, right, liberty, the government, the Constitution, and the Union. My third point I'm going to make at the end of our tour, uh, presentation. You may all stand aside. He will rule then, and no man can move him. No set of men can do it. There is no fail here. This is Lincoln, and you mark my prediction. You and I must keep the people right. God will keep Lincoln right. December 21st, 1860. I love this photo. I'll leave this up here. I have other things that are not in the materials. I love it because it was November 8th, 1863 by Gardner. That is the closest photo except the one of him, the blurry one at Gettysburg, taken to the Gettysburg Address. That's 11 days before. All right, on the personal side, there are five copies of the Gettysburg Address. 
They are all written in Lincoln's clear, legible hand. The first two do not say under God. The final three do. Only one was signed by the President of the United States. That's the final and fifth copy. It is signed and dated Abraham Lincoln, November 19, 1863. This leads to, did he say it? And then inevitably, if you read about Lincoln, there are reams of books written about did Lincoln believe in God? Did Lincoln have a faith? Was Lincoln baptized? Was Lincoln a Christian? How, what the relationship did Lincoln have with the clergy? My whole point in bringing this up to you is to say he did say under God because the people who were there, who were able to hear it because he was so quick, many of them said it's over. That's why we don't have any image except that big one. They expected, and they didn't know he was told to make a few appropriate remarks. And many people were just surprised that he stood up and he sat down. All the reporters that heard it and took shorthand said he said it. But the most important thing is, in the final three copies, it's written in, not interlineated. It's just written in as if it were in the original sentence, including the one he signed. So we now think that it was not in his original first draft, but he ad-libbed it. But my point to you is he said it. Now, this is important because he had to deal with this, and I'm just going to give you my conclusion because there's an awful lot written about this. But if you look at the speech he gave on the train when he left uh, Springfield on February 11, you look at his first inaugural, his first message to Congress, the emergency session of July 4, 1861, the proclamation of Thanksgiving and on the July 15, the second inaugural, He's always, always, always referring to God, the Almighty, Divine Providence. In that short speech he gave in Springfield, he mentions God three times. Him, the Almighty, etc. But he had to deal with the fact in the 1846 election, the only time he ran for Congress, that his opponent was a Methodist minister. And Americans care about how, if they don't care about your religion, they want to know what influences you. And just if anybody's counting, I'm going to give you two Republicans and two Democrats. You take candidate Lincoln and candidate Romney, you take candidate Kennedy and candidate Obama, all had to address their view of religion. So this is what Lincoln did in the 1846 election when challenged. He is challenged and there is, quote, a charge that I am an open scoffer of Christianity, that's him, question mark. That I am not a member of any Christian church is true, but I have never denied the truth of the scriptures. And I have never spoken with intentional disrespect of religion in general, or of any denominations of Christians in particular. It is true that in early life I was inclined to believe in the doctrine of necessity, that is, the human mind is impelled to action, or held in rest by some power over which the mind itself has no control. And I've sometimes, with one or two or three, but never publicly, tried to maintain this opinion in argument. The habit of arguing this, however, I have entirely left off for more than five years. And I add here, I have always understood the same opinion to be held by several of the Christian denominations. The foregoing is the whole truth briefly stated in relation to myself among, upon this subject. Close quote. Remember, he's an honest man. What he's also saying is, don't you ask me about this again. Now, in my opinion, I'm boiling down my... my studies, President Lincoln has a powerful mind. Guelzo says a voracious intellect. And this is a man 
who will sit down with a Shakespearean actor in the White House and spend two or three hours discussing Falstaff in each of play, Shakespeare's plays where he has Falstaff. And then, this is the only president, I don't know whether you knew this, who applied for and received the patent. This president read all of Euclid's books. This president could quote chapter and verse of the Bibles. He has a brilliant, he meets with British politicians and he talks to them about their parliamentary form of government and they're impressed. So he's, I've concluded that he concluded that there is a God on a rational basis. So my argument is when you say did Lincoln believe in God or does Lincoln have a faith, you're asking the wrong question. If, do you, if you say, did Lincoln conclude there's a God, my answer is yes. And I say all of that, now I anticipate one of your questions. Because twice now I've seen this political correctness, and I'm going to tell you what I mean, and I'm kind of given how I think about things here. I was asked to review the text of all the galleries that are in the new visitor center at Gettysburg, and that's there. there's all sorts of narration. And I went through the whole thing. There are two or three galleries on the President's visit, and they were going to put, and did put, the Gettysburg Address. But they picked the first or second version they left under God out. And I said, this is not right. Yes, you could argue that he wrote that, but we know he said it. And they said, we're going to correct that. And I also spoke this speech, uh, maybe most of you probably know this, but there is a Smithsonian National Endowment for the uh, and uh, the Humanities and a third group, uh, maybe uh, public television, have jointly sponsored a traveling Lincoln exhibit going all around the country. And the Hagerstown Community Colleges had three speakers speak on various aspects of Lincoln, and I gave this presentation. And the brochure, the big brochure you open up, has the Gettysburg Address without the words under God. That infuriates me. But it's there. So I spent time saying that's how it came about. And from whatever your personal beliefs are, this is any attempt to proselytize anybody. Historically, the president said it. That's my point. Other personal issues, his family. His mother died when he was eight years old of milk sickness. His grandfather predeceases him, his younger brother, his older sister. He's affected by that. His father married Sarah Bush Johnson, a widow. She brings her family together, blends them very well, and he respects her quite a bit, and she respects him. But, you know, I, I try to realize that Lincoln also put his pants on one leg at a time, too. And one thing I've noticed about President Lincoln is something about his personal relationships. When he moves on, he moves on. So it's, it struck me as interesting, strange, he never took Mary to meet his parents, and he never introduced his parents to any of his four children, ever. Never even made the effort. Now we know he was estranged from his father, because his father didn't understand Abraham wanting to read books all the time. And Abraham had to work till he was 21, and turn the money over to his father. That was the law of the day, and that's why Abraham stopped being in doing any farming work, because he hated it, but he did the work as he was required to do. But that doesn't explain why he wouldn't go to his stepmother and show his new wife, children, to them. 
He liked women, but he was very uncomfortable about being with a woman who was single. If you were married or engaged, that was okay. That's why we think he really did fall in love with Ann Rutledge because she was betrothed to a man from New York. He was in Springfield. He said, Ann, I've got to go back to New York and settle some family business. And he wrote her a letter or two and time and time and time went by and she, her father owned a tavern. She worked that. Lincoln went there. He stayed there at times. And he got to know her, but he was able to do that initially because she was betrothed. Well, we think that I think, I'll just say it, I just think he did love her. I think he did respect her. I don't know, I can't say one way or the other whether they were officially engaged. I think he was truly upset when she died. Then he, he starts dating. He meets Mary Owens. And uh, they went on a picnic together with a bunch of folks. And they all had their horses and they went picnicking and they had to cross a small stream on the way back and Abe got to the stream and just plop, plop, plop through the stream and he didn't bother to see if Mary was going to make it across. <laughs> and that was it for her. This is, this is Mary Owens' course. Mr. Lincoln was deficient in those little links which make up the chain of a woman's happiness. How am I doing, ladies? <laughs> so, uh, of course, he said... I can never be satisfied with anyone who would be blockheaded enough to have me. That's that self-deprecating sense of humor. So then he meets Mary Todd, and they start dating, and they're engaged, they're going to get married. Lincoln calls it off, not Mary Todd. And then he kind of makes nice. After he writes Joshua Speed, his friend, another long-term friend who moved to Kentucky and uh, gets married. Hey, Joshua, what's it like? It's okay, Link. It's okay, Abe. It's okay to get married. I'm doing fine. So they, they do marry. And then she is very, she is, they are loyal to each other. They're faithful to each other. Yes, they're going to have lots of emotional problems. And I will say it now, and will come in later, she was never disloyal to the United States of America, in my opinion. She had a lot of problems with money, including the money given by Congress to fix up the White House. But she was never disloyal, though she had three, count them, three brothers who fought and died for the Confederacy. We, talk, we talked about Eddie dying, we talked about Willie dying, and again, she is very upset that he's going to leave to go to Gettysburg with their baby sick in the White House. And I would submit to you that that's what most writers focus on, but nobody asked the question, was Lincoln upset? And he was. He was equally as upset as his wife. He was in anguish. But I... David Herbert Donald, whose book was in the raffles last night, the, the, the preeminent author before Burlingame, says he just brushed her aside. Now, I think he's wrong. I think Borat and I think Burlingame talking about him being upset and concerned is the better way to look at it. But the point for you is we're still talking about personal issues, and he's very bothered with that. And we know that he got a telegram from Mary while he was finishing writing in David Will's master bedroom, and he's got to tell somebody, so he tells Sergeant Bingham the guard, my wife just sent me this letter. My son is getting better. My son is getting better. And it makes such, like, so much weight. On him. And what I think, because I've read, there's a really good recent book, by the, the author's name is Epstein, and it's called The Lincolns, a, a tale or story of a marriage. It's only 2010. And he has great details about 
how they felt about each other, and he described the death of Eddie, and he described the death of Willie, and he described the death of Eddie in Springfield. It was winter. Lincoln couldn't even see. He was going from room to room, putting logs in the fireplace, and could hardly see. He was crying so much because he kept going to the pharmacy, and they ran out of what he needed, and it didn't work. And then he ends by saying, and Lincoln is crying, trying to keep the house warm. His wife is in anguish, and he's got to explain to Robert what this means, and he can't do it. That to me is that's Lincoln in this personal respect. Sure, he has a sense of humor. Can you imagine a president? Now I'm getting the preparation thoroughness. You asked the question that he write it on the back of an envelope, and I agree completely. He did not. But before that, he's always thorough. He was he, he always prepared every speech he gave, every case he did. He gave over he had five over five thousand cases. He was an excellent lawyer. So he's asked to give a brief autobiography in 1858 for the Dictionary of Congress, which they still have to this day. That's how I verified who Wilson was. And uh, and can you imagine if you're a politician, 1858, you're going to run against uh, Douglas for senator, and sometime along this timeline, he's starting to think about becoming president, at least running for it. So describe yourself, Mr. Lincoln. Quote, born February 12, 1809 in Hardin County, Kentucky. Education defective. <laughs> Professional lawyer, had been a captain of volunteers in the Black Hawk War, postmaster, very small office, four time a member of the Illinois legislature, and was a member of the lower house of Congress. Yours, Senator A. Link. Can you imagine any politician giving up that opera? Education defective? Boy, you take the tongue out of that cheek. <laughs> now, did he write this on the back of an envelope? No. He always prepared his arguments. He asked, now, Formed Department of Agriculture as a landscape architect. His name is William Saunders. David Wills hires William Saunders to design the cemetery we're talking about. He asked Mr. Saunders to come to the White House on November 17th. Can you please tell me what I'm going to see when I get there? He's already been briefed about the battle by his generals. And we don't know if he received a copy of, of the Everett speech, but he asked for it. And the point is, that's his thoroughness. I thought, what's the man going to say? What's it going to look like? I've been briefed on the battle we're going to dedicate. So he's trying to prepare himself. At least two groups of people, Nikolai and Hay, two secretaries, and James Speed, the brother of Joshua, say we saw him working on it, or he said, I'm working on this speech i got to give a couple days from now in Gettysburg. So we have their uh, testimony in quotes. It's written, the original first copy, you called the White House in that, that time, the Executive Mansion. The first page is Executive Mansion. The second page looks remarkably like a piece of foolscap paper that you might borrow from a lawyer if you were in his house as a guest because you have to finish writing something. I challenge anyone to, to prove to me that you could write that Gettysburg Address in that clear legible hand on a 19th century train. <laughs> Physically impossible. Yes, we lawyers call that circumstantial evidence, but you can use circumstantial evidence. It is not forbidden. It just has to be considered by the jury or the judge hearing the case. Furthermore, for, I'll probably get thrown out of the room, but for Baltimore Orioles fans or for Baltimore Ravens fans, where do they play? Camden Yards. What was Camden Yards? That was the north side of Trainleaves, Washington. 
They change at Camden Yards, they go to Hanover, they change again, and they go to Gettysburg. Each place, schmoozers got on the train. All the local politicians, and the president's a politician, he's joking, he didn't have time to write anything. He's meeting three different groups of people. And the train is what wiggle-wobbling all over the place. Lastly, my last argument is that Secretary of War Stanton comes in around the 16th or 17th and says, Mr. President, by the way, you've got to go to this place called Gettysburg in two days to give a speech. I have arranged for a train at 6 o'clock in the morning. No, Mr. Secretary. I don't trust the... Not That's too strong a word. I'm concerned about the reliability of the trains. I want to go the day before. Anybody here from Minnesota? Okay. Minnesota only had one regiment that fought in the Union Army of the Potomac at Gettysburg, and they did themselves proud, what they did on the second day. The governor of Minnesota was arriving on the 19th, and six miles away or so from the train coming from Hanover, they hit a cow, and it was either derailed or broken down or stopped. The governor of Minnesota did not make it to the dedication ceremony. Lincoln was right. Lincoln wanted to be there. So all those are indicators to me of him being thoroughly prepared, and that's a bunch of hooey that he thought about at the last minute and wrote on the train. Another personal issue with which he has to deal. I, from Philadelphia originally, from California now, don't anybody take offense. I would call this a chair. Some of my friends in the Midwest of the United States of America might say cheers. Okay? Now this I'm taking from Holser and the guy who wrote uh, Lincoln at Peoria. When the Kansas-Nebraska Act was passed, that got Lincoln's political juices going about slavery. So he says, because we have no recordings, if you were President Lincoln and you started a speech, you'd say, Good morning, Mr. Chairman. Because he had a high-pitched voice. And the more he spoke, it modulated to a more masculine-sounding voice. What's my point? This president is accepting that he can't say much and he will not have time to have his voice modulate. So as you and I would say today, he's actually speaking outside his comfort zone. He'll accept that slight too. I mean, the Lincoln-Douglas debates were an hour and a half, two hours apiece. Edwards spent for two hours. That's what you expected to do back then. He knew that. We talked about his health. Now, equality is in his DNA, and it will be part of the Gettysburg Address also. So I'm trying to make these connections as we go along. But we'll so, in the interest of time, I have stories about women, Quakers, Irish soldiers, Jewish soldiers, black soldiers. Uh, but I, 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 one of my favorite ones is uh, the following. In the 1840s, 1850s, maybe late 1830s, we had... <coughs> A, a group of people in our country called the Know-Nothings. They were officially nativists, and they became known as the American Party. And their zenith was the 1854 election where they elected about 40 members of the Know-Nothings to Congress. And the Know-Nothings got their name from when they would commit the crimes I'm about to describe, they would be questioned by the authorities, and they say, I know nothing, I know nothing, I know nothing. Well, the crimes they were committed, they were virulently anti-immigrant, and most of that was directed at Catholics, particularly Irish Catholics. Our city, where we were born, there were riots in uh, 1844, 
And so 20 people were killed and a Catholic church was burned simply because they were Catholic. Now, in the political scene, the Whig party is starting to deteriorate and the Know-Nothing party is starting to deteriorate in the 1854-55-56 time frame. The first candidate of a Republican, the first candidacy of a Republican for President of the United States was Fremont in the 1856 election. Didn't go very far, but that was the formal first uh, candidacy of a Republican. Lincoln, with his brilliant mind and political instincts, trying to decide the Whigs are going away. I'm, no, I'm not a Democrat, but a lot of the know-nothings are getting attracted to this party that's going to become the Republican Party. What do I do about that? The point I'm going to, when I read this, I just want you to know, this is 1855. It's a private letter to his friend Joshua Speed talking as himself. I am not a know-nothing. Quote, I am not a know-nothing. That is certain. How could I be? How can anyone who abhors the oppression of Negroes be in favor of degrading classes of white people? As a nation, we began by declaring that all men are created equal. We now practically read it that all men are created equal except Negroes. When the know-nothings get control, it will read all men are created equal except Negroes and foreigners and Catholics. When it comes to this, I should prefer emigrating to some country where they make no pretense of loving liberty, to Russia, for instance, where despotism can be taken pure and without the base alloy of hypocrisy. That's Abraham Lincoln. That's a private letter. He never knows it's never going to be published. He, has, he isn't running for any office. It's the private Lincoln writing to a close, one of his few close friends. So, faith, family, sickness, humor, self-deprecation, thorough preparation, speechifying style, health, equality, all on a personal level will affect what he says at Gettysburg. Does he have any political issues going on? Yes. What's the first one? It's a nice transition from political, from personal to political. Abe? Yes, Mary? My sister just, my sister's husband just died. She has a small child. Uh, I'd like to be with her and help her get through this. Do you mind if she comes and stays in the White House for a while? No, Mary, that's fine. I have a minor problem with that. The husband who just died, this is Emily Helm. The husband who just died was a Brigadier General in the Confederate States of America Army. And he died at the Battle of Chickamauga, which was a Confederate victory after Vicksburg and after Gettysburg, September 2021, 20, 1863. So now the president has got these highs, failure and retreat. Now the Rebs have won a big battle at Chickamauga. And now the wife of a Confederate general officer wants to stay in the White House. He says, okay. But Emily Helm asked for a pass to go back and deal with her cotton business. And she gets to Fortress Monroe and she refuses the military officer requirement. We'll make sure you get escorted safely, but you have to sign an oath of loyalty. No. They telegraph president, send her to me. They escort her back. She's in the White House and they talk. And, and Helm, before he dies, was offered a position. He had been in the United States Dragoons, hurt himself in the wars out west. Hurt his back. The president says, there's a war. Everybody's 
going south. Uh, you are now the Attorney General of Kentucky. Uh, if you're thinking about serving, I'll make you a major and a paymaster in the U.S. Army. It'll be a, you know, a light duty. And Helm will say he very much respected the president for doing that. He said, I cannot do this. I, I'm going to fight for the South. Now his wife gets in an argument with Sickles and a Republican senator where they're talking about winning the Confederates retreating. And she says, and she said, well, we won Chickamauga because uh, you learned, uh, we saw you uh, run at Bull Run. You know how to do it. Go words that effect. That enrages General Sickles, who lost the lower right leg in Gettysburg. I don't know what you think of Sickles. A lot of problems with him, but he busts into the living quarters, and the president is reading with Tad and just is livid. And the president gets very defensive and says, You can't tell me whom I can invite to my house. But when she refuses to take the oath of oil the second time, that's it, she's out of there. As we would say today, bad optics. <laughs> Talking politics now. Okay. Emancipation, January 1st, 1863. Conscription in 1863. After the Battle of Gettysburg, it came up at our table tonight. January, July 13th, the Rebs are starting to go across the Potomac in the night to start a draft riots in New York City. And this is a blot on the Irish because it quickly turns, it was a, a genuinely that's, the, that's the, 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 the draft law now says you can have a substitute. You can pay 300 bucks and you don't have to serve. So all the dirt poor Irish are saying, this is a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. And they demonstrate in front of the Republican officials and the, draft, the military that are conducting the draft, start rioting, and it turns to be a racial act, and many innocent blacks are killed, especially those that were married to white women. That was done intentionally, and was brutal. From the point of view of the president, and it went not only in New York, but there were smaller riots in Boston, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Rutland, Vermont, Troy, New York, and Worcester, Ohio. Estimates range from 170 to 1,000 killed. Many, about a million or so dollars in damages, 1.5. Point is, the president and the secretary of war have to send troops, some of whom fought at Gettysburg, to fire on their own people in New York to stop this riot, and they do. That begins to affect him, wondering if the peace party is going to gain influence and demand an end to the war. Let's deal with the cabinet with one story you've heard of, and many of you probably read Team of Rivals. We know that. Uh, Chase, Treasury, Seward State, Bates, Attorney General, and Cameron, Secretary of War originally, were all candidates for a Republican nomination in 1860, whom Lincoln beat. But he intentionally asked all of them to be in his cabinet, and Wells, Secretary of Navy, was a Democrat, had been a shipbuilder, newspaper guy, reaches across the island and gets him. He wants strong points of view, the way we would say it today, he doesn't want yes men. But he's also got a tiger by the tail, so I'll just give one story to move us along. Salmon Chase, Secretary of Treasury, lusts after the presidency. He will never, this is incorrect English, if there's an English professor here, I'm sorry, he will never stop not wanting to be president. 
That's a double negative. Um, and his daughter is 19 or 20. By the way, if you marry Chase, man, three wives, they all died. Natural causes, no suspicions there, but three wives died. But this is the daughter of one of them. She is 19 or 20. She's very attractive, very uh, uh, single, uh, very intelligent, very outgoing. And she is very supportive of her father's presidential ambitions. So literally, Secretary Chase is working during the day to help finance the war. And at night, he's writing hundreds and hundreds of letters to federal, local, and state politicians, to generals, newspapers, greasing the skids to be the nominee in 1864, because in, in the past 20 or 30 years, the trend is that every, every president is a one-term president. And he figures, he, he got, he didn't like what happened to him in 1860. Okay. So Lincoln decides to tell a story. He was plowing a field with a lazy horse when he was doing farm work in, in Kentucky or Indiana, and all of a sudden this horse did one furrow very well and very quickly, and he had a companion with him, and the horse gets to the end of the furrow, and all of a sudden he's wondering, this Lincoln the farmer boy, wondering what happened, and he sees what he called a chin fly on the horse's chin, and I guess it was biting the horse, and so he swats it off, and the, his companion says, you shouldn't have done that, that's what made the horse go. So Lincoln says, if Chase has a presidential chin fly, I'm not going to knock it off it will make, if it will make his department go. <laughs> so he knows, and this is not only, this is also a little bit family, because it's now February of 1863. Mary's mourning for an entire year for Willie is over. She takes off the black dress. She wants to start having parties, and who are having the, the rival parties in Washington? The place to go is the Chases, where his daughter is talking to town. And that's a double problem. He's not only undermining President Lincoln's policies, you get Mary mad now, because she will not put up with anybody who's disloyal to her husband. And the president says, I'm not gonna knock off the fly. Let him do what he wants. I know exactly what he's doing but the department is going well, and that's the way he handles this troublesome cabinet. Has he got to deal with Congress? You bet he does. Joint Committee on Conduct of the War, from May, December 61 to May 1865. Three views. Lincoln was the puppeteer, controlled them all. Second, view is they were all powerful and they influenced a lot of the decisions they made. The third is they did positive and negative things. That's probably the answer. They were uneven results because they were mostly ignorant of military science. They didn't deal with military decisions. They politicized military appointments, yet they were hardworking, patriotic, and wanted the Union to win the war. So they had spent a lot of time studying Bull Run and the Red River Campaign, and that was very nice. The reports come in a year or two later. What good are they? Uh, they will not get done with the Sickles-initiated Historicus interview of every single general at the core and division level at Gettysburg until February of 1865. But these generals got to keep schlepping up to Washington and testify while the war is going on, including Meade, who testifies, and then everybody testifies about Meade to this joint committee. But they cover the Fort Pillow, Ma Pillow Massacre of the black soldiers, and they cover Union prisoner mistreatment and financial mismanagement. So some of their 
reports were positive and helpful. So in the political arena, he compartmentalizes Mary and Emily. He deals with a very strong cabinet. Seward Chase wants to be president. Seward thinks he can troll the president and do circles around him and eventually will become one of his strongest allies and has tremendous respect to the president. Cameron was corrupt, gets shoved off to be minister, minister to Russia. Stanton steps in and, and works himself almost to death. He does a good job. President's wary of Congress. There's not a, no, no member of Congress is invited to Gettysburg. And the president's view of slavery are, are evolving. Anything going on on the policy level? Yes, a few things. Remember, national policy is military, economic, social, political. Let me try to boil that down with one or two stories to give you, again, a sense of how we've dealt with what he's dealing with personally. we dealt with the politics. Now what's going on policy-wise? Uh, and I find this helpful because we focus a lot on land battles, and properly so, but the United States Navy had a role to play, didn't they, Admiral, in the Civil War? So, let's take a look at this ship first. Look at where it is. I know this is 1865, but it's indicative of another major diplomatic foreign relation issue the President had to deal with. This is the CSS Shenandoah. It's being caught. It's in dry dock, and there's the second Confederate official flag, which they nicknamed the Stainless Banner. This ship, by the time she's done, was built in Scotland, purchased, outfitted in the Azores or the Bahamas. It evaded the British Foreign Enlistment Act, and this is beginning to enrage Secretary Seward. By the time she's done, depending on who you read, will capture and or sink 38 to 40 United States commercial whaling vessels on the high seas. She'll go to the South Sea, she'll go to the Bering Straits, and she'll go to the Sea of Ashtak, Akash, how do you pronounce it? Right next to the so Yeah, I'll get you the world out. Anyhow, the Ruski Sea. It's all the way up there. And then she's up there in uh, 1865, and she's sailing back. Where do you think she's going to sail into? I'm from California. She's going to go to San Francisco Bay. She's going to maybe capture some gold. She's going to test Fort Point and Alcatraz, which are military forts, and they have the bay entrance bracketed. Ain't no gold <laughs> bridge there. She's met at sea by another ship around August. She's informed that the war ended in the April-May time frame, and the American Navy now considers you to be pirates. Whoops, all the guns are thrown overboard. She goes around the horn, and I, I told you this last night. Sir, you who write the quizzes, somebody who's not here tonight, what? here's a trivia question for you. What, when is the last surrender of a Confederate unit? When was it? November 1865, when the Shenandoah pulled into uh, the River Mersey near Liverpool and brought her flag down the last time, and the crew just disappeared. We got a better one than that. And you can look at that one, but let's uh, build up to that.
know what the best of intentions. This is what I sent you earlier and I modified. What I don't have here is March 8th and March 9th, 1862, but I'll describe it. March 8th is when the CSS Virginia, the former Merrimack, comes from the Norfolk Navy Yard, which is now captured by the, the uh, Confederates, and has been, the Merrimack has been rebuilt as the ironclad, and she comes out and she moves down Hampton Roads, and she rams the CS, USS Cumberland. And she pulls off, and the Cumberland is starting to sink, and she's firing at the Cumberland, and the Cumberland continues to fire at the CSS Virginia. Even Marines are on deck firing their little muskets. And you see one in the famous painting pulling the lanyard, another cannon's being, as a literally ready to slip beneath the waves. And the Confederate Navy will show great respect for this ship that was fighting literally as it was sinking. Then the CSS Virginia moves further down Hampton Roads and attacks the USS Congress, which goes aground and flies a white flag of surrender. And a couple of tugs are with the Virginia. The commander, Buchanan, not President Buchanan, gets off and they go to accept the surrender. But nobody told the Union soldiers on shore that the Congress was surrendering. They start shooting and wound the commander of the CSS Virginia, the ironclad, pulls back, sink that ship, and they fire hot shot, where you heat solid uh, shot, fire into a vessel, hoping it will catch fire. The Congress catches fire, burns through the night, and, and, and the fire reaches her magazine at midnight, and she's spectacularly. So the Cumberland is sunk, the Congress explodes. And on the way back, because the tide is receding to anchor next to a Confederate battery on the other side of Hampton Roads, the Virginia fires at the Admiral's flagship in Minnesota, causes her to go to ground, but can't continue the fight or else she will be, have problems with the tide. So the Virginia anchors well. This creates an entire panic in the cabinet room of the White House. Stanton is beside himself. Oh my God, why can't that ship just leave Hampton Roads, go up the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, pull up the Potomac? My God, that ship could be firing on the White House and the Congress tomorrow night. If she, we have no ship that can stop her. Well, I got something called the Monitor, literally, coming out of the Brooklyn Navy Yard on March 3rd or 4th, coming down the East Coast. Stan says, well, what is it like? How many guns have? Two, two. We just got a we just got a telegram that this thing has ten, and it just sunk two of our ships, and the only thing stopping it is the tide, and they are so physically confrontational that this president has to separate them in the room. And what's the president do? Goes over to the navy yard, gets hold of Dahlgren, the back says. Uh, how deep is Potomac? Can this ship get up to Potomac? They start arguing about 22 feet draft. Well, let's see, what did the Virginia have before? I mean, the Merrimack have? And then Stanton starts buying ships, and, then, and he goes to Georgetown, goes everywhere he can. He appropriates, uh, as we would say in the Marine Corps, he liberates a few ships, and they fill them with stones, and he wants to block the channel 50 miles down on the Potomac, a place called Kettle Bottom Shoals, which is about 22 feet, which they think is the draft of the Virginia. And Lincoln turns to, and then Will says, 
Well, you haven't helped us because the Confederates have batteries of artillery all along the Potomac on the Virginia side. That's the Army's job. Well, it's on the river and you're in the Navy, you want to get up and down. And they're arguing in front of the President. The Virginia's coming. It's sinking everything in its sight. The President says, Secretary Stanton, he calls Mars. Mars, you must not cripple Neptune, who is Wells. You can buy your ships. You can take them down to Kettle Bottom Shows. You do not sink. You do not put a stone in that river unless you talk to me. That settles the problem. And then the monitor shows up the morning of the 9th and fights for four hours, sometimes touching each other, and it's a standoff. Okay. So Virginia knows she can't beat the monitor. The monitor can't sink her. And basically the president now. McClellan has landed, the Peninsula Campaign has started, the President says, I want to see what's going on. Now this is an amazing, and this is summarizing the Commander-in-Chief and military policy in one story. The President says, let's go down and see what's going on at Hampton Roads, and he wants to go to Fortress Monroe, which is still there. And the house he stayed one night is still there. It's owned by the Commonwealth of Virginia now. I and a bunch of guides just visited about four months ago. Tremendous experience. And we went to the Mariner's Museum and saw the turret, the guns, the engine of the Monitor, which they lifted out, I think, in 2009. <coughs> and um, all of you know that two sailors whose bones were in the turret were just buried March 8th, the anniversary of that battle at Arlington National Cemetery. It was not covered in the San Francisco papers. Formal burial of two U.S. Navy seamen who drowned on the night of March 31st, 1862, as the monitor was moving down to Ham uh, Cape Hatteras. If that storm had occurred when she came down from Brooklyn, history would be much different. She sunk at sea. She wasn't really made to be in turbulent seas. The president goes down. Let's check it out. They come in a tug. He's got Chase with him because the tug is a treasury tug, and he's got, uh, not tug, a uh, cutter. And he's got uh, Wells and Stanton. So three strong-willed members of the cabinet are going to go with the president. He gets there at night. Courtesy is the president goes first. There's the Minnesota. And what do they call those little steps on the side of the ship? Is that, that's not a ladder, is it? Is that a ladder, too? You've got to step on it and hold on to, the, to get onto the deck. Okay. So the president, boop, 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 right up. No problem. And he gets there, he sleeps there that night, he wakes up in the morning, here's the Minnesota, here's the monitor, across the way is a Confederate battery, and by now, oh, the other thing I forgot to tell you, when they were upset in the cabinet, it happened at Vanderbilt, the rich guy was visiting, and he's got a brand new steamer, and he says, can I help, do you want my steamer? And the president says, yes, you can have it, we'd love to have it. And they put a reinforced iron bow on the Vanderbilt, so the Vanderbilt is there which means it can ram the Merrimack if it has to. So the president looks across and says to the admiral, Admiral, why is that battery still there, that Confederate battery right over there? It can still shoot at your ship. It was called Sewell's Point. Well, sir, we're busy guarding New York and change and blockade. Beep and a bop and a boop. Why don't you think about that? Well, and then he gets off. He's off to Minnesota, goes to uh, Miami, gets on a tug, and goes and visits the troops that are participating in uh, the Peninsula campaign. Comes back, and the Admiral plans 
an attack with the Monitor and other ships, and they will, on the next day, destroy that battery. Next day, the President gets up, and we destroy it, looks like this, gets on same routine, don't boom on the tug, goes up to the Monitor, says, Captain, I haven't had time to talk to the Admiral, but do you think you could check out and see if that battery's over? Yes, sir. The Monitor chugs over, they chug over, the battery's destroyed, comes back, and we don't know for sure, but the President, on this tug, with Chase following in the Miami, the cutter, goes over to the Confederate side, and if he got off, he's the only president we know of who will be standing in enemy territory during a war. He may have just kind of checked out. He's looking for a landing place. He comes back and he asks the general, General Wool, now that the battery is silenced, don't you think you could land? and take some troops in the back door of Norfolk and get the Navy Yard back for us? Well, certain troops are guarding the supply. We put them out the same routine. They didn't, didn't occur to them, or if it did, they didn't do anything about it. All of a sudden, there's an amphibious operation. And the Army lands. Now, they bump into each other. They're goofing up there, but they finally get their act together to save the day. The Confederates vacate their camp. The mayor comes out, he was clever, he spends a lot of time negotiating, and we figure the Confederate troops use that time to... All of a sudden, Norfolk Navy Yard is now back in Union hands. Next day, it's time to go home. Back on a ship, and all of a sudden, the black funnel starts coming out. It's the Virginia. Oh my God, but we have the Monitor, and we have the Vanderbilt. And there may have been one or two other rams. CSS Virginia comes out, into Hampton Roads, turns to a place called Craney Island, beaches herself, sets herself on fire, blows herself up, and scuttles and destroys the ship. Stanton sees this and said, this is fine. He sends an email, uses words in the email. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. There's a book called Mr. Lincoln's T-Mails. I must have had a slip. <laughs> sends a telegram. This thing blew up as fabulous. Why did that happen? Because the commander who was court who demanded a court of inquiry, not inquiry, demands a court martial, says, Well, they they own Hampton Roads now. I'm the only Confederate ship. They own the Navy Yard where my dry dock is. So I'm gonna go up the James River and support now first General Johnson, who's then wounded and leads up on against McClellan's. But the draft is the same 22-foot problem. And then, so they start lighting. They say, take some cannons off, take some coal out, and what's that do? Rises the ship, which means there's no more armor covering her original wooden hull. Now you've got a ram out there, you've got the monitor, so he concludes, we would sacrifice ourselves usefully, we can't get up the danger, we can't do any harm to the Yankees, so without a shot being fired, <laughs> It destroys itself, and Stanton can't believe it. And that's less than a week, and that's not a bad job if you're President of the United States. You've destroyed a Confederate battery, you've taken back the city, and their, their biggest, most powerful naval ship is destroyed in front of your own eyes. So, this, this is everything. Uh, the President is technically smart. He calls in uh, when, when this first happened. Also, he learned that Warden, the lieutenant of the uh, Monitor, in that fight on March 9th, Michelle hit the pilot house and blinded him. He's back up, I think. He's a guest of Wells. He's the president. Is that right? I want to go visit. 
no press, no nothing. It's Abraham Lincoln. He walks over and uh, Lieutenant Warden, the president, said, oh my God, let's get bandages on and he talks to him. He asks him what it was like. How did the monitor perform? He says, I'm going to promote you. I want to thank you for your service. And leaves. Personal. How about political? He's banging heads with Stanton, Wells, and Chase, and he's the one making all these decisions in front of their heads about how he can put things together. And policy, he's not only the commander-in-chief, he's acting like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Because the last thing he does before he leaves is, now, Admiral... I want your ships to go up the James River also, and if they can go up the York River, I want them firing on the Confederates to support the Army. Stop giving me that Navy. You've never had problems with joint operations, did you? you guys, so he, he's telling them work together. That's the last thing he does. That's not a bad week if you're President Lincoln. Okay, just briefly. On the policy side, I'll just say this very briefly. I thought about this when I started giving these. I knew the 2000 election was coming up, so I didn't use the term growth of government. I used the term concentration of power. So if you think about what's going on while he's president through 1861 to 1863, and this is the man who wants to preserve the Union, we're going to start with 7,500 militia. Then we're going to go to nine months, then we're going to go to two years, then we're going to go to three years, then we're going to have conscription. We're going to allow black soldiers to serve, and we're going to conscript some of them. We're going to blockade uh, nine of our states. A blockade under international law is a, is, a, is a method of war against another nation. And this president will never agree that the states seceded, or had a right to secede, they were rebellious citizens. So how can you blockade your own states? He does it anyhow, it's going to go to the Supreme Court. He's going to suspend the writ of habeas corpus, a fundamental right to challenge arbitrary arrest of every citizen in this country that goes back to Magna Carta and comes in the, in the laws of the British companies that founded New England and founded Virginia and goes in the constitutions of the original states and goes into the United States Constitution. Shall not be suspended unless of insurrection or rebellion, but it's a power of Congress. It is in Article 1. It is not in Article 2, which is the power of the President. Suspends it and starts arbitrarily arresting American citizens by, I thought, the dozens or hundreds. It it's somewhere between 13,000 to 40,000 by the time the war was over. And where do many of them get sent? Fort McHenry. I did that irony. Francis Scott Key, our national anthem. And here are these citizens. Why have you arrested me? And you're ignoring my right to file for a writ of habeas corpus. Well, I sure am. I'm going to do it a second time in September 1862. And I'm going to do it a third time in September 1863. But the third time, Congress gave him authorization. But there will be three cases. And if you want to ask questions later, I can. But one is signed off by the Chief Justice himself, ex parte Merriman. You need to release Merriman, this Maryland farmer, that your troops woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning at his farmhouse and went into his home and arrested him, and you refuse to charge him. The president ignores the rights of the United States. And then there'll be one in 1863, and there'll be one in 1866. That reads, so ex parte Vallandigham, ex parte Mulligan. 
Military takes over all telegraph lines. How about a complete package of a government program? Let's start the Department of Agriculture in 1860. Well, they're going to need a place to live, so let's have the Homestead Act. Let's give away 160 acres if you can farm it for five years. Oh, you need to be educated. Let's have the land-grant colleges. And while we're doing that, let's extend the railroad to the Pacific. So we can get the farmers there, give them land, teach them, and get their products to market. Complete federal package in the middle of the war. Got to have an income tax. 1862, got to increase it in 1863, and on and on. The government is growing. So, uh, let me end briefly. Do we have the Raiders and Rams, Brian? Yes, briefly. Look at the providence of these ships. The Laird brothers built the Florida. Miller built the Alabama, or it might be reversed. But anyhow, this is Liverpool. The Florida, the Alabama, the Georgia, the Shenandoah are all out raiding U.S. commerce on the high seas with the tacit, I would say tacit approval of the British government because the technicality was none of them was armed while they were on British territory. They went to Brit England. There was a British Foreign Enlistment Act that prohibited that. So they, they put portholes, they put bunkers for the powder, bunkers for the shot, and then they went to the Azores of the Bahamas and outfitted the ships. And all three or four of them got out. Well, we got to test it. It's, it's, it. What do you call that when you first go out on a test cruise? What do you call that? Sea trial. Thank you. That goes sea trial. Yeah, sea trial and they're gone. All of them. So now it's 1863, and please look at this. I think of Teddy Roosevelt's Great White Fleet. But this, this is an all-metal, and there are two turrets, revolving turrets, and there's a seven-foot integral ram, like a spear, underwater in front of, attached to and integral to the bow of that ship. But the Confederate Secret Service and the Confederate Navy, oh no, these are being built for the Pasha of Egypt. See the name? El Toussaint. They really are going to call it the CSS North Carolina, and this is British CYA. Look at this one. This is the other one. And the metal sides are down. Look at that turret. Look at that turret. Those are metal sides. And I learned, Admiral, these are called tripod masts. They're wooden with less shrouds so the guns can shoot better. This Hummer Dew is around till 1922. That's 1863 technology. And the, the point is, the minister, our minister to England is playing a cat and mouse game with our consul, that's Adams and Dudley. There are a hundred, a hundred or so spies, agents, Money's being changing hands, newspapers are involved, workers working on the ship, and they're building a dossier to go to the British and say, look, you got those other raiders out under our noses. Your blockade runners are going through our blockade, but boy, if you let these go, it, here's exactly what Charles Francis Adams says to the Foreign Secretary, Lord Russell. It will be superfluous of me to point out to you, Lordship, that this is war. Thank you very much. Mr. Minister, what can the President of the United States do against the most powerful Navy in the world? Nothing. But he's going to use words, and I'm going to tell you what I mean in the Gettysburg Address. To say nothing of Napoleon III mucking around in Mexico.
And when he brings Mac Maximilian in 
that you that I think this country may not survive. And this is where his double entendre is. This where, in my opinion, testing, he's also talking to Britain, France, Prussia, Mexico, Austria, Belgium, and Prussia, and Spain. It is rather us here for to be dedicated to the great task remaining before us, the cause for which they so nobly fought, preserve the Union. And then the final ringing sentence, unequivocal, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. The world will little know, testing the earth. That is a message to the European countries that want us to fail in my opinion. Because that's all he has is words and that's why I talked about all the diplomatic and other issues. So, I hope I've contributed to your understanding of the Gettysburg Address and I hope you agree with me that on November 19th, 1863 at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, there was no fail in President Lincoln. So thank you very much. Jen has got some time for some questions, so if anyone has any questions? While you're thinking about that, I have, again, former Marines in my DNA. I liberated these at the National Park Service. Don't tell anybody, but So this is the Gettysburg brochure you would get there, and this is the walking tour of the cemetery we've talked about. If you would like one or both of them, you're happy, I'm happy to have you take them. Yes, sir talked about the, the degree to which the arrangements of Lincoln delivering appropriate remarks with Everett as the principal speaker were a snub to the president. Yes. And my question is, did the organizers want or expect Lincoln to accept their invitation? Because I've always understood that you might think of this as merely a formality. They were merely as a formality inviting the President of the United States, never expecting him to actually attend, but merely to send the equivalent of a congratulatory telegram, as today thousands of invitations come to the White House from people who know that the President isn't going to actually attend their event, but they're, they're simply looking for something in the way of a gesture. So did they really expect him to be there? Or could you see the, these arrangements as indicating the fact that they, they did not feel that Lincoln would personally accept their invitation? Word on the street is that he was told in advance that he would be invited, even though the letter was written November 2nd after Everett accepted. I think that's a very good argument. I don't agree with it because bottom line is I look at knowing that Curtin was a political ally, knowing that even then all these governors and the president and the generals knew that something happened at Gettysburg, it was a pivotal battle. And thirdly, even though I make a big deal of this, because I think when you add them all together, you would never do that to a president today, whether it was ceremonial or you, we really want you. The sentence in writing him is, it is the desire that after the oration, you as the chief executive of the nation formally set apart these grounds to their sacred use by a few appropriate remarks. A few appropriate is after he's told them the states are in charge and Everett's, but I think it's a respectful invitation, but he is. What I'm saying is, you look at the first sentence, the several states, this is a states rights issue from the north. They're taking their proper role by inviting the commander in chief to come. 
So I do think they genuinely wanted him to because simultaneously he'll write a personal letter on the same day inviting him to stay in his house. I, I think that's a good argument, but doesn't carry the day to me from what I've read. Yes, sir. I have two questions. First of all, um, with regard to the new birth of freedom, did President Lincoln mean that only for the slaves? Or did he mean that for everyone who was disenfranchised? It's notable, for example, that in 1860, South Carolina alone of all the states did not call its people to the polls to choose presidential electors. Uh, my second question... Uh, well, can I try to answer that? Because I'm not quite sure. Was it meant only for the slaves? Or was that's, it that's the question. Or broader than that? I'm a lawyer. I'll talk out of both sides of my mouth. <laughs> yeah, people interpret it that way today. And we should interpret through our prism what we see, and it's one of the reasons why it's one of the greatest speeches in the American language. But I spend a lot of time talking about the world and from the earth. I mean, I read these articles that he was speaking to all mankind forever. Do you really think he's talking to the people in Tibet or Cuba or Bangladesh today? They can take that interpretation. But I don't. I think he was talking in his day, in his time, and because he was worried with the Emancipation Proclamation, you had four border states: Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri. What's a border state? It's between the Confederacy and the North, physically. But the real reason it's called a border state is they have lawful slavery, but they did not secede. So he was constantly worried, particularly about Kentucky, that if he made the war too soon, other than preserving the Union, in other words, adding freedom for slaves, that he would, as we say, turn off a lot of people. And maybe one of those states would literally go south. So I think he meant only slavery because he's being oblique three times, but that was still a big deal. That's my answer. Well, the only thing is when I mentioned other people who were disenfranchised, I wasn't speaking of other people in other countries. I was speaking of other Americans like the people I mentioned in South Carolina. I understand, <coughs> and I took liberty with what you said. Okay. I don't think this president at that time was worried about some voters in South Carolina in the middle of the war. He was more about preserve the Union and uh, get the slaves free, because now I'm recruiting them, they're fighting, they're in the Navy, and the Emancipation Proclamation is out there. That's why I think he's referring to slavery only. What was your other question? Okay. Okay. Yes, sir. Since. Um Edward Everett's speech was the main speech of the nation of the day. Did Everett's speech try and make the same three points you think Lincoln's speech did? And how would you compare the two speeches except for the fact of eloquence and uh, conciseness? I'd add to it that uh, Everett was as equally thorough in his preparation. He, he went to the battlefield, he interviewed soldiers, he went back to the Peloponnesian War. He, 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 he studied everything, and he talked about these hills and these men who fought here, and he was absolutely eloquent. Uh, he didn't make the three points the way President Lincoln did. I have to admit, I only read it once. But I don't recall those points leaping out at me the way the President did. Maybe you did. 
I think he gave a, a, a moving oration based on that battle, referring to that battle, and using antiquity to uh, be his prism. But in terms of those three significant points the president made, I don't think he did that per se. But he did a fine job for the day. He did what he was able to do. Do you know that uh, he, this is why I disagree with question seven. The word on the street is that when he sat down, he said to, to Layman, that won't scour, which means a plow, when it doesn't scour, mud sticks on it. Most of what I read said he didn't say that. But what we do know is that the next day, Edward Everett will write him a letter that will say something, I almost got this exactly right, I wish that I had captured the central meaning of the moment in two hours that you were able to do, Mr. President, in two minutes. And he adds a note at the end, how is your son? Well, this absolutely moved the president in a way you can't imagine. I can't imagine. And the same day, the president writes back something like, you could not have made a shorter speech. I could not have made a longer one. But I am so glad that in your view, my few words added to the occasion, or words to that effect. So that means your question was true or false. I think it was false, so you say it's true. But I don't think, from my reading, that he was that disappointed in what he said. He was self-deprecating and humble about it. And then he ends that note with, and thank you so much for asking about my son. Yes? How long did it take for the, for the press and for the rest of the country to realize that this was truly a magnificent speech? Well, funny you should ask that. Because we are in the building of the Chicago Sun-Times. Who knows what they said? Well, it wasn't the same Times, but it, the Times said it was a disgrace. They said that every American's cheek should tingle at the dishwatery utterances of our president. What does the Chicago Tribune say? This will live among the annals of man. That's the answer to your question. God bless the freedom of the press, which we fight for. <laughs> Look at those two views. Yes, sir, I'm sorry. Was there any common reaction in the Southern the Confederate press? I just have to plead ignorance. I don't know. I've just never come across it, but I haven't looked for it. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe our trivia that I know, so I don't know. I don't know. That's an excellent question. I've never been asked that. Yes, First of all, the Sun, neither of the two papers that later merged to create the Sun-Times existed at that time. Okay. The paper that was around them by that name, the Times, was owned by a guy by the name of Story, and it was a copperhead paper. Okay, secondly, I won't make that mistake either. Second, the other question I had meant to ask you earlier, with a tongue-in-cheek, was I take it that there was no podium with the presidential seal on it when President Lincoln spoke. No polling? No podium. With a presidential seal on it. That's a fair, yes. And, and he didn't, he never, he spoke and he never moved around much and he didn't gesture much. He usually put his left hand on his lapel and spoke. Yes, there was no podium. Well, I'd like to ask the last question, John. What's the, now that you've been uh, a licensed battlefield guy for the last 10 years, what was the process, the reason why they had battlefield guys at Gettysburg. What was That's, the reason behind that? Thank you. That's a good background question. In 1913, the second of the major reunions occurred. One at 25, this was the 50th. Thousands of veterans from both sides came back to Gettysburg. The Army built a tent city, northern tent city, southern tent city. 
these men socialize. We have these grainy films of these men walking across the same fields where they tried to kill each other 50 years before, many with canes, many without legs or arms, and shaking hands. It's very moving. During that reunion, these, now these are men on both sides that fought there and saw their friends, sometimes family members, die there, sometimes in the most horrific way, and the sufferings <coughs> afterwards. Found out that townspeople in Gettysburg, in that same square we talk about, would jump on their buggies or their dashboards or their Model Ts and say, would you like a tour? Oh, sure. And the people were making it up and just winging it. And this enraged the veterans who fought there. And they went, at that time, the Army was running the National Park. You must do something about this. So in 1915, the Licensed Battlefield Guide Program started, and it's been in continuous use since then. It's the only historical park that has licensed battlefield guides that are tested by the National Park Service and authorized after several tests to give tours. Vicksburg has guides, but they're licensed by the town. Antietam, where you're going, has guides, and they're licensed by the bookstore concessionaire. We're the only one licensed by the National Park Service, and that's how it came about. Thank, well, you. thank you again, John, for a great presentation.